Hello, everyone. Welcome to Time to Head North. Today, I am honored to have my friend Jessica Walton on with me today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for uh, giving us some time today. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you. So I'm Natasha Ryan. I'm the host of the podcast and I'm the VP of communications for the North Group. And we try to, you know, bring relevant topics just in the security industry, but also give like a humanitarian side and feel, you know, we we love the the human nature and emotional side of the story. And so Jess has a direct tie to Israel. She studied there. She served. And, and we want to talk to her about the, the current war, the Israel-Hamas war that broke out on October 7th. Um, I just, Jess, before we jump into the conversation, if you could just give a little bit about your background for folks. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so just thank you again for reaching out to me um, during this difficult time. Um, so I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community in Maryland, um, right on the border of D.C. So a lot of people in my community, and including my own family, um, work for the American government. Um, and at the same time, we're a very Zionist community. We have strong ties to Israel. A lot of people, myself included, have immigrated um, to Israel, uh, which is what I did at the end of high school. Um, I was very affected by the Second Intifada, which broke out. Um, when I was in high school. And um, I, I always wanted to work in security. I actually did an internship with the police forces um, in the US, you know, when I was in high school, but it, it just like hit me when I when the war broke out in Israel, um, you know, how important it is to to contribute to, you know, your community. And of course, you know, I'm I'm standing between two communities, right? As as an American Jew. Um, but I made that choice as a teenager to immigrate to Israel on my own during the second intifada, which was kind of crazy. But um, yeah, so I, I went to Israel with the intention of studying criminology. I failed out because my my Hebrew kind of sucked. <laughs> and I took a little detour with my security career and I wound up doing a bachelor's in English literature instead, which gave me an appreciation for story, which has become so useful today. Um, and I wound up coming back um, to the U.S. a few years later to do my master's in security intelligence. And then like like a, a little, uh, you know, like in a pinball machine, I went back to Israel and I finished my degree at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in the political violence and terrorism department. And uh, I'm not going to go into my whole like haphazard career in the Israeli security field, um, but I worked in private uh, security, private protection. Um, I served in the military and the IDF. And um, yeah, and I, I continue to have many friends in the Israeli security field, including friends who are currently fighting in Gaza. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> so I, I wound up uh, marrying an American and coming back to the US um, just a few years ago. And I'm, I'm back in the community where I grew up, which was not expected, but it's, it's kind of wonderful too. Sometimes you appreciate where you came from more, you know, when yeah. you've been away for a bit. Um, and so now I'm a communication strategist and video producer um, in the U.S. defense sector. And about a year ago, I started a blog um, covering mental health and psychology issues in the security field. And um, in addition to writing articles, um, I interview other members of the security field, including uh, CIA, military leadership, Navy SEALs, uh, police officers, um, even psychologists and, and filmmakers. 
And so I, I've gotten used to um, talking to other people about their mental health experiences. And whenever I talk about my own mental health experience, I'm, I'm really talking about something that happened more in the past to me. Like I, I really struggled with bipolar disorder um, in my late teens and for most of my 20s. Um, but amazingly, I've been off my medication for a decade and I've been doing very well. So even though it's not easy for me to talk about struggling with bipolar disorder, I'm really talking about something that I struggled with in the past, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of become my new comfort zone, right? Is, is talking to others or talking about other experiences when it comes to mental health. And um, I just want to point out that when you initially reached out to me, I think just a few weeks into the war in October, and, and I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. It's just too raw. It's just too like present. Sure. Um, but then I realized like, wait, I'm kind of a hypocrite if I don't speak up when I'm in the middle of, of you know, struggling with my own mental health because I'm encouraging other people to do that. That's been, you know, a big part of the blog, right? Um, so for the sake of not being a hypocrite, I came back to you. Eventually I said, okay, let's, let's talk. <laughs> So, and I, and I'm so grateful you did. And I think, you know, the one thing that I will say about this podcast is we seem to be a beacon for sharing vulnerabilities. And I love that, right? Because I think in our industry, that is so, it's not prevalent enough. Although several people, including yourself are moving to make that a more norm, uh, right. a bigger norm in our industry, because the people in our sector see so many things that are really hard to cope with mentally and emotionally and they're traumatic and it causes trauma and as we all know trauma has long lasting effects on your life your environment your relationships right so i want to start this conversation because i just want before we jump into what we're going to focus on i just want to give some prevalent stats so people understand the gravity of the situation, you know, if they're not up and up, which I think most people listening to this podcast probably are up on the stats, but the latest statistics as of today from the IDF, you know, they've lost over 2,500 people, another more than, you know, 7,000 injured, you know, on the Palestinian side, we're talking tens of thousands, um, killed and injured. So the, the life, you know, the toll on human life is great in this situation. And when you have a tie to a community, watching those numbers, watching the violence erupt, um, it it's something that even if you're not present there in the environment, it's it affects you, right? And when I did reach out, you said, I can't. Tell me in those moments, you know, when October 7th happened, what were you feeling? What did you think? I mean, we were all taken by surprise. I, I think it's, you know, common sense across the board. Mm -hmm. Everyone was surprised Israel got surprised like they did. Right. So it was kind of a shock to globally, but on an emotional level, what was that like to see October <clears throat> 7th hit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to start at the beginning. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, even though I'm sharing my personal story, it's not really for the sake of, of me venting. It's really, I, I hope that I'm representing at least a segment. I don't want to say I'm a spokesperson for the entire Jewish community, but I, I think that my experience, the more I've kind of spoken to others, I realize that it is um, representative of a lot of people, how, how they've been reacting um, to what happened 
starting on October 7th. So um, first of all, Hamas launched, you know, their attack on a Jewish holiday, Simchat Torah, which is supposed to be one of the happiest um, days of the year. So they really just stuck it to it. It's like anything they could do to make, you know, this attack as painful as possible. You know, they did that. And as an Orthodox Jew, like we don't use our phones, we don't use electricity, we're, we're not looking at our computers or the internet on these holidays or on a Sabbath. It was actually also the Sabbath when, when this happened. Um, so we found out initially through a police officer who was guarding our synagogue. And I, I just want to point out that um, even before uh, this current war started, um, the Jewish community in the U.S. has really been suffering from anti-Semitism, um, according to FBI statistics. Yes. Approximately 50% of religiously motivated attacks in the U.S. are against Jews, and we make up a little less than 2% of the population. So it is the norm for us, even before the war started. Now we have increased, increased security, right? But even before the war started, we we have police around our synagogues, around our children's schools. And I'm not sure most Americans realize that you know, we live this way. Um, so the police officer said, you know, hey, did you know there's like something major going on in Israel right now, right? He, he was, uh, you know, reading the news. And initially we thought, you know, almost like, I hate to say it, but like in a jaded way, oh, here we go again, another exchange of rocket fire. Yeah. 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 Um, but then like we had a meal later that day, we had, um, just like a gathering of some people in the neighborhood and um, somebody, an Israeli from our neighborhood who's not religious, who was using her phone and looking at the internet, showed up at the house and said, guys, this is really bad. There are people being taken hostage. There's like slaughter, there's torture. It's like, and, and we were just like, wait, what? It's like, you're shocked, right? Because it's just kind of, wait a second, this is not, you know, what we expected. And, and all of a sudden, there's like this very deep fear, like your your reality, the bubble you live in is is being burst, and uh, we're like, what's going on? And 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 just the news, it kept getting worse and worse. So initially, we were told, you know, there were 200 people killed. Then it was 500, 700. It was 1400. Right? It just kept getting worse. And then we find out, you know, okay, there's 80 hostages. No, there's actually over 200 hostages. And and it was just unbelievable. Um, so yeah, we were shocked. Um, and then we were also, I know this is going to sound strange, but I, I think a lot of us were a little annoyed, a little cynical, because we saw, you know, internationally, um, this outpouring of sympathy for us, right? All these countries, all these governments that said, oh, you know, these poor Jews, these poor Israelis. And I just want to point out also, this is not just an attack against Jews. There were Bedouins and Druze, there were Arab Israeli citizens who were also murdered and taken hostage there were foreign nationals who wrong place wrong time right you know who were students there or they were working on farms you know who who also suffered from this attack but we were just like the jewish community sees this outpouring of sympathy for us and frankly we were cynical because they're like we're, we're like hey yeah people don't have a problem sympathizing with us when we're laying there bleeding on the ground but what's going to happen you know when our military starts to take action, right? Because there's also just a tremendous amount of rocket fire. To this day, three months later, there's still rocket fire coming out of Gaza, yeah. right? Um, Hamas is, is using to its advantage the fact that the Israeli military opened humanitarian quarters to protect Palestinian civilians, and they are shooting rockets from those humanitarian quarters. And, and we just figured, okay, whenever this happens, it could be tomorrow, it could be a few weeks from now, but once the Israeli military starts going in and there are Palestinian casualties, 
most of these people who are expressing sympathy now with us, they're not going to express sympathy anymore. When we start to defend ourselves, like that's going to be it. And that was very frustrating. And now we're seeing who our real friends are, like the people who are actually standing, you know, by our side during this very difficult conflict. Let's talk a little bit about just as a person in the defense sector who's worked security mm -hmm. in Israel. I mean, Israel has long been known as the one you can't infiltrate, right? So what, I mean, on that front, were you and your former colleagues, current colleagues, just utterly shocked that they were able to attack the way they did? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's eventual, I mean, people are floored, right? And I'm sure there are people from inside the security community, right, who had access to special information. I mean, we're, we're finding out a little trickle of information right now about what went wrong. And I'm sure once the dust of this war settles, there's going to be, I mean, massive investigations. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, there's also this sense of anger in the Jewish community against our own security community. Like, what happened, guys? Were you sleeping on the job? Right? We're, we're, we're angry. Um, at the same time, I, my sympathy goes out to members of the security community because they didn't want this to happen, right? Can you imagine, like, you've committed your life to protecting your people and then this happens? And look, just a few weeks ago, you know, th there were Israeli soldiers who accidentally killed three of our hostages in Gaza, right? Can you imagine how they felt? Right. To, so to say that this is a failure, right? I mean, yes, huge mistakes, huge failures. But it, but at the same time, I think you know we have to give sympathy to members of the security community as well. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, th this was a huge surprise. It was just a huge miscalculation for sure. And you know, yesterday with the news of you know a Hamas leader being killed in Beirut and Lebanon, the concerns there and the spreading of who's going to get involved and how big this is going to escalate. What is your biggest fear? That we could just be attacked, you know, civilians, especially who are just so vulnerable, um, that we could just be attacked anywhere, anytime. And, you know, it, it could be in Israel, it could be in Europe, it could be in America. I mean, I mentioned that we have even more security around, you know, our, our schools and synagogues and institutions right now. And, um, you know, we, we can see very clearly what's happening on the university campuses. Um, it's not freedom of speech. Calling um, for the genocide of Jews is incitement. And, uh, and, it's un and it's not just, you know, verbal. It's been physical, too. You know, Jewish students being attacked. I mean, it's just you know, it's a very scary thing also for America. I mean, I think America has to look around saying, what is going on with our younger generation here? Um, but yeah, I mean, we're just, we feel like not only have we been kicked so hard with this horrible massacre with our hostages, we still have over 100 hostages, you know, in, in Gaza. Um, we feel like, wow, we've been kicked so hard and now we just continue to get kicked while we're bleeding. Um, but I think we we have to still, you know, remain faithful, just to, meaning, you know, believing that we're going to get through this difficult time as well. I mean, I hate to keep using the word surprise, but quite frankly, I don't know what other word to use, right? So, sure. you know, in seeing the news and seeing, you know, the college campuses and just kind of the anti-Jew messaging, I mean, did that, <clears throat> after being attacked, did that, did that surprise you as well, seeing that kind of messaging? across the United States? Yes and no. 
I would say no, because every time we've had some kind of conflict in Israel, there's always a spike in anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic attacks. I think what maybe some of us are surprised by is just the scale of it. Um, I want to point out that, like, this isn't really a rise in anti-Semitism. I mean, these are people who always had anti-Semitic sentiments, and um, now they just feel emboldened to show their true colors, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we expect there to be some kind of backlash against, you know, the Jewish communities, um, because if we like it or not, um, if we travel to Israel or not, we are connected, right, um, to the country. So, yeah, I mean, the scale of it, you know, has been very upsetting, to say the least. And, you know, I, I guess what I want to get at here is, you know, does this need to serve what happened in Israel? Should it serve as a wake up call for the United States? That violence yeah. can happen anywhere. Attacks can happen to anyone, no matter what the level of preparation. If attacks are properly planned and executed, anyone can potentially be vulnerable. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the reality of the world we live in and also the reality of, of any security community out there, even, you know, um, a, a community that is very professional, you know, and diligent. Um, I, you're not going to be able to stop every attack. I can tell you out of like the massive amounts of suicide bombings that we've had in Israel, um, the Shin Bet, which is Israel's internal security service like the FBI, um, you know, they would publish, I think, annually or biannually, like um, the statistics of all the suicide bombings they stopped. Right. But we only usually we're only aware of the ones that actually happened. And that could just be one percent or less than one percent of the actual suicide bombings that were supposed to happen against this. Right. Um, so that's something that like that is a tremendous burden. Right. That the security community has to live with. But um, yeah, look, I, I don't think you're ever going to be able to stop 100 percent of attacks. That That is absolutely the reality. But, you know, the bigger picture is Hamas didn't do this in a vacuum. They were funded by Iran. They were funded by Qatar. And they're funded by, you know, the same people who are the enemies of the United States. And if you look at the Hamas charter, right, and I tell people this all the time, I said, stop listening to all these manipulations by journalists, by academics, just go to the source, like listen to what, you know, these Hamas leaders are saying on Al Jazeera, their translations, you know, to English and other languages, look at their charter, they refer to America as the big Satan, and they refer to Israel as the little Satan. So Israel's just an appetizer, you know? And so I think absolutely Americans should be very concerned about, you know, what's happening. And, um, you know, I mean, I hope to God that nothing happens in the U.S., right? But um, I think the younger generation on the college campuses, they don't have any memory of 9-11 like you and me, Natasha. We, we remember, you know, the attacks of 9-11. And um, I, I know that not all military veterans, of, of course, think the same way, but um, as somebody who works in the defense sector and works with a lot of vets, I mean, they're very sympathetic, majority speaking, um, to Israel because they recognize that Israel is fighting the same enemy. This is jihadist terrorism. This is, you know, a radical, hateful ideology. When we talk about this escalating, and, and I was trying to get to this a while back, I mean, when does this, this conflict is nothing new, right? So when, if ever, is there peace? I mean, how does that happen? Or do we just escalate into World War III? And what, I mean, what's your, I, I guess I'm asking for some analysis here. Like, what, <laughs> what's, your, what's your prediction on how this, how oh this my God. looks? 
how this looks a year from now, how this looks 10 years from now. Well, there's so, I mean, it's based on so many factors, right? Like how, how involved is Iran going to get, right? Because I mean, at the end of the day, and this is hard, this is really hard for us psychologically, the Jewish community, Gaza, as bad as it seems, it's like, it's, it's just one problem area. We, we have Iran and, and, you know, Hezbollah to the north. Um, we've actually evacuated thousands of our citizens in the north from their homes because we're anticipating that there is going to be some, you know, wide scale, um, you know, war in, in Iran with Iran or, or with Lebanon. And, um, you know, we have the West Bank. We have Palestinians in the West Bank. And this is according to both Palestinian um, surveys and Israeli um, studies that 85% of the Palestinians in the West Bank enthusiastically support what Hamas, you know, did um, on October 7th. So that's like, that's also just another powder keg. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't tell you, I'm not, I, I can't see the future, right? It really depends on on so many factors and, you know, who gets involved and, and, and when. And there's a lot going on behind the scenes, right, that we don't know about. We just know what we read in the news. So I think we have to have some kind of humility there, like admitting there's a lot we don't know, and to be careful about how harshly we judge our security communities because they're privy to information that we don't have. Uh, my personal ideology is that we should always put out our hand for peace. I would love to have peace with the Palestinians. I would love to have peace with all of our Arab neighbors. Um, but at the same time, we have to be realistic and we have an obligation to protect our own people as well. You know, I just, I, I go to like, you know, Israel and the U.S., you know, they've had many talks about getting aid to Gaza, right? And then the citizens that are affected. And I just like picturing the the loss, the kids, the lives. I mean, it it's just as a human, you never want to see that, right? So right. how do you, like when you have these mental health moments, how do you, uh, how do you cope with those kind that kind of imagery and seeing it and knowing that, yeah. kids, you know, you're a mom, I'm a mom, like knowing that kids are affected, like how do you cope with that and then go about your day? I struggle with that even with just, yeah. I mean, compared to this, like a mundane news story, right. Um, with something bad happening. And <clears throat> I mean, how do you, how do you do that? Having ties? Yeah. There? Yeah. Yeah. No. And having, you know, friends as well that are fighting there. Um, so I want to go back a little bit um, to something that, you know, happened in the beginning of the war that's still like, I'm actually, my heart is racing just, you know, thinking about it. Um, but yeah, this is something um, very particular that affected, you know, my mental health at the beginning of the war breaking out. You know, we know, we, we, we've seen a lot of the devastation, um, specifically because Hamas recorded it. And something that I saw at the beginning that haunts me <laughs> right now I mean, to this day. Um, so Israeli children were, were dragged out of their beds in their pajamas. And there was a video and I, I saw it by accident. I don't remember which social media feed it was, but I, I just um, I was rolling through my feed and I saw it was a video of a little boy, um, probably around five years old, the same age as my son, who's, you know, in his pajamas. And um, Hamas had, you know, um, kidnapped him into Gaza and he was surrounded by Gazan civilians, um, men, women, children, I think who were as young as eight and they were kicking him, they were hitting him with sticks and they were screaming at him, Yahud, Yahud, Jew, Jew. And this, this little boy screaming for his mother, he doesn't understand, I mean, what happened, why he's there. 
And I, I mean, I, I can't even talk about it even now without crying because it's, you know, I, I can't imagine. I don't even know if his parents are alive. I don't know if he's alive. Um, and I saw this video totally by accident. I wasn't looking for it, but, you know, th this kid was there because he was a Jew. And um, if I had been visiting my friends in the south of the country with my family, that could have been my son. And this is just one story. There's thousands of stories right now in Israel like that. Just horrific stories, families that were just devastated in moments. They're in their pajamas, in their beds. And this could happen anywhere to anyone. I just want to say that, like, we can't. We, we can't show weakness. We can't, you know, make excuses for evil. There really is pure evil in this world. And I was so, I had nightmares for weeks about that, about the hostages. Um, I mean, for the first six weeks um, of the war, I cried every day. Um, most people I know in the Jewish community cried every day. And I have a really tough immune system. About a week into the war, I got sick like runny nose, sore throat. And I stayed sick for a whole month, just totally run down. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I'm just, I learned a lot. I just learned a lot about mental health, you know, in the last um, few months alone from this war. Um, I realized, first of all, like, it, it's kind of a balancing act when it comes to psychological resilience and healing. Um, I think... Yeah, there's like this this duality that I, I definitely want to talk about. And I think it has implications not just for people who are struggling with the current war, but for anybody who is dealing with an extended conflict in their life, whether that's um, going through a divorce or maybe someone you're close to is dying of cancer. Like, like that is the question I, I've been thinking about recently, like knowing that this war is going to be quite extended in Israel. Like, how do we deal with that? How do we like go about our days without being constantly and, and breaking down you know yeah yeah so the the jewish community like like i was saying before we were very cynical when people were initially sympathetic because we said once the war really starts once we start fighting back you know to stop the rocket fire to to get our hostages back to eliminate you know hamas as a terrorist organization not to purposely inflict pain on the Palestinian civilians, which I know is happening as collateral damage as a result of the war, right? As a result of fighting in a densely populated area. I totally understand that. And my heart goes out to innocent Palestinian civilians who wanted nothing of this, right? And at the same time, I mean, I told you very graphically in this video, I saw Palestinian civilians, right? Men, women, and children beating up this, this five-year-old Israeli boy. So anyhow, I just realized that we are pulling inwards as a community and we're seeing what's happening on the campuses and we're saying to ourselves like we have to be careful we might not be able to stay in america for another generation we might have to encourage our kids to leave and i realized you know what as, as important it is, as it is to have community and to support each other i think we also have to be reaching outwards because the reality is we we still have a lot of friends and allies in the non-Jewish world. And if someone like you, you know, reaches out and says, hey, I want to talk to you. Are you okay? You know, do you want to share your story? Um, my initial reaction was to pull away. But now I realize we shouldn't be doing that. We should be using our voices, especially because there are so many people who are manipulating our story. For anyone in the Jewish community who has the strength to speak up, I think we, we need to be speaking up and we need, you know, to to reach back out to you know, our friends and allies outside of the Jewish community as well. 
So let's talk about that. How accurately or inaccurately do you think the stories are being told in the media here in the United States? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, to illustrate how bad it is, how manipulative it is. I was at a party a month ago. I was a going away party for a friend of mine. It was a good distraction from everything going on. A non-Jewish friend of mine who was moving to Los Angeles. And, um, there was a guy there who, um, you know, just said to me, hey, I, I heard that you're a dual American Israeli citizen that you used to like work in security in Israel. And um, he said, I don't really know any Jews. He said, I, I don't really know anything about Israel. But he's like, I'm reading the news and I'm like asking myself, what the hell is really going on there? <laughs> because he said he's just reading stuff from all these different outlets. And it's like, it's really hard to know what's going on, you know? Um, I mean, to go into the whole history of the conflict, I mean, I, I can't really do that here. That's like, yeah, the, I think beyond the scope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, there are just the, these lies, you know, being told about the country. Um, one of them in particular that I find very irritating is that, you know, Israel has been occupying Gaza this whole time. And so Hamas is like these freedom fighters trying to push, you know, Israel out of Gaza. And I'm like, no way, man. Like I was in Israel in 2005 when we pulled out of Gaza and handed over a full authority to the to the Palestinians. They voted for Hamas. Okay. They chose Hamas as their leadership. We pulled out. We said, okay, you want your own state? Here's your own state. Okay. And it was very painful for Israeli society because there there was a Jewish community in Gaza at the time. It was, it was about 8,000 um, citizens. And we sent our own military down there to take them out. And some of them went willingly, willingly and, and some of them did not. They were not happy about leaving. And there was, it, it was almost a civil war in Israel at the time. It was a very painful decision because there were people, and I was, by the way, I was an English literature student at the time. Like I didn't have a strong political opinion. I just was like witnessing it, right? I didn't, I didn't really know like what was the right thing to do because there were people who said, listen, we have to separate from them. Give, you give them what they want, you know, um, give them the state. And then there were people who were like, this is a disaster. This is going to bite us in the ass, for lack of a better way of saying it. They're going to turn this, you know, Gaza into a terrorist state, and this is going to be a disaster for us. So, yeah, but it was a very painful decision. It caused a lot of internal strife, you know, in Israeli society. And it's just really, I'm sorry if I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole there. I'd rather be talking about the mental yeah. health stuff. But but I was there when that happened. And I saw my, my own friends who were in the military at the time went down there to take people out and then to say, well, Israel is occupying Gaza. It's like, no, it's so much more. First of all, we're not. Okay, we're, we're out. We're not administering our authority, okay, to the Gaza Strip anymore. Yes, we are trying to control weapons that are flowing into the border, okay? Egypt is doing the same thing, by the I way. I point out really yeah. quickly for the listeners <laughs> that may not understand, Hamas is a designated FTO from the U.S. government. So they are yeah. a terrorist organization, just to be clear. Go ahead, Jess. I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah. So just, just to finish that, I didn't mean to go down like the, this rabbit hole, but I, I just wanted to give an example of like something that is such an outright lie that I was actually there when it happened. And I'm like, man, this is like really frustrating. And, and look, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not like one of those trained advocates from the government, you know, talking about Israel. Right? I, I'm not somebody who wants to get controversial, but 
like many other Jews and Israelis, we are speaking out on LinkedIn, for example. And look, I, I was just until this point talking about mental health stuff, not not looking to get controversial. Um, but again, I, I felt a duty to start speaking out to speak at least about my own, you know, personal experience in, in Israel. And um, yeah, just I, I don't think I'm going to change the minds of any people who like just hate Israel and, and are just completely anti-Semitic. I, I can't approach those people, but I think there are so many neutral parties out there. Like, you know, the this guy I met at my friend's going away party about a month ago. And I'm like, you know, I think we still have to use our voices to speak to those parties that are open to hearing more or who are who are neutral and just don't really understand. I think we have a right to use our voices to tell our story as well. You know, this war's kinetic, right? But do you think that the bigger war is fighting the disinformation, misinformation? I mean, is that is that the bigger component in this? I mean, it is a component, right, of, of the war. And I mean, this has been going on for a really long time. I mean, there, there's a whole history. And um, I don't think the Israelis were really aware of what was going on, you know, in in the diplomacy scene. I mean, basically, and I can just very like, I don't want to get too political, right? Because I have to keep in mind, you know, where I'm employed, but um, I can actually pinpoint when when the Palestinian side started thinking more about like, the diplomatic, you know, aspects of attacking Israel. Um, this was in 1973, after the Yom Kippur War. Mm-hmm. Um, we had several wars in a row where Israel was attacked by by many Arab countries at once. Um, and and it looked impossible that the country would survive, but we did. And at this point, um, the Arab world said, okay, this is it's clear that we are not going um, to defeat Israel by technological means alone, right? Or or through a war on trance, like an all-out war. Like that clearly wasn't working. We just had a war, the six-day war, right, in 1967. That that didn't work. Um, and that's when there was this campaign, a long-term kind of war of attrition, so to speak, um, to start pulling the rug out from under Israel. And I think th- there were some people like Yossi Cooperwasser um, in the intelligence community who were aware of this and were trying to alert people to this issue. But I think, and again, I don't want to, I, I don't know if it's really appropriate for me to be criticizing the Israeli security community in any way. And uh, I feel like my amount of knowledge is, is nothing compared to right scholars or other practitioners in the field. but. Um, it is something that the Palestinians were, were going to countries, you know, like Vietnam and the USSR and, and learning how to basically use information warfare in a, on a, a global scale. And by the time, you know, Israel kind of woke up to it, it's uh, we're, we're decades behind. Yeah. So when you're battling a war that is, you know, obviously geographical but also like geography based, right? But also like religious ideology, right? Like you're right, you're not gonna change minds. So, you know, when we talk about finding any sort of end to this particular time, this particular war, conflict, whatever you wanna call it, you know, what, I just, I, you know, like, I don't know what that looks like. I really can't envision how this, how this concludes even on a temporary level. Is that where you're at mentally? You're just, you're preparing yourself for a long, exhaustive, never-ending battle. Have you already prepared yourself for that? 
Like, like I said before, I think we have to hold on to hope. I think we always have to put our hand out in peace, you know, to the Palestinians, to our other Arab neighbors as well. Um, and we have to be realistic and we have to be able to fight and to defend ourselves. I just want to point out that we have a model, a positive model already inside of Israeli society. Most people outside of Israel don't realize that 20% of Israeli society is actually Arab. That so we have Arab citizens who serve on the Supreme Court. They serve as journalists. Um, they even serve in our, our military. And we don't always have perfect relations. I'm not going to like whitewash things in Israeli society, but we have overall very good relations. And I would venture to say that our citizens, our Arab citizens, in many ways, are living much better in Israel than the rest of the Middle East. I'm sorry if that's controversial to say. So we do have a model, you know, where Israel is not like it's a Jewish state, but not all of our citizens are Jewish, and we're okay with that. And by the way, in the entire history of Israel, we never had, you know, this country who said only Jews live here, right? We, we've always had, you know, minorities that were not Jewish that we were okay with integrating into our society. So I think we already do have a model right? That shows that we can live, you know, peacefully with our Arab neighbors and that we actually value our, our Arab citizens. And so, you know, I think there are also some other voices, you know, in the Arab world outside of Israel who are speaking of very brave people. Um, and I just think we have to do our best, you know, in America as well to strengthen those more moderate voices so they don't get drowned out by the more extremist or jihadist voices that are trying to destroy any chance of peace for the future. And I want to be respectful to your mission, which is, you know, being open and honest and navigating mental health. Right. And you have, yes. <laughs> we could go back to that. Platform. Yeah. You have a great platform and I admire your, your passion for putting it out there and your mission. So I think, you know, what I'd like to talk about is, you know, given, and I'll give an example, right? So here in the States now, 25 years ago, when kids were dropped off at school, that was a safe place for the most part, right? Like parents were able to drop their kids off. They didn't have to think about the worries, right? Now, when I drop my daughters off, there's not a morning that goes by that I don't think about mass school shootings, situational awareness, access control. I mean, all of these things go through my head every day yeah. now. And it's a genuine concern I have. So now when I hear you, so we already have that level of concern. Now, yeah. when you layer on hate crimes against Jewish people and knowing that when your daughter or your son goes to a Jewish school, there's probably going to be armed security there. Your synagogues have armed security. This is just the new norm. That and was our norm before. That was our norm before October 7th. Now it's just there's more, <laughs> you know, there's more security, right. there's more police officers. But that was our norm before. And I just want to say that I think America is a great country. That's by, by the way, this is why I'm, I'm speaking out with, you know, any, you know, non-Jewish um, colleagues, any non-Jewish, you know, podcast hosts, anybody, you know, because I, I still believe in the value system of this country. I think this is still a country worth fighting for. Absolutely. So, you know, I just want to say that despite the fact that we have to live this way as, as a minority in this country, I still think this is a great country. I, I, don't think that the majority of Americans are anti-Semitic, but the right. unfortunate reality is, and this applies anywhere, especially the Middle East, is that you can have a minority, a very vocal, hateful, violent minority that ruins things for everybody else. So we, we have to be, you know, tough about that. We, we have to be able to crack down on that. And look, as for the situation, you know, with your own kids, 
um, just as an American, I, I think, you know, I'm going back to this thing with mental health as, as a balancing act. Like, I think on the one hand, you need to be aware of what's going on in the country, right? You have to be smart as a parent to protect your kid. But I think if you don't take a break from the media, if you don't sometimes just kind of focus in on on your own life and your own world that is still good, positive, safe, yeah. I think you're going to yeah. lose your mind, right? Because, you know, look, these, worry, school, yes. these school shootings are are horrific, right? But they are not the norm in this country. They are still affecting less than 1% of, of Americans. Um, so even though it's something, you know, we need to be aware of, it's just this isn't like the overwhelming reality either for the country, but the media is going to make you feel that way. So I think it's okay to take a break from the media. And by the way, you know, I, I mean, myself, many people in the Jewish community have had to take a little break sometimes from the media for the sake of our mental health. Like, believe me, I mean, to this day with the war, it's like, it's really easy to be checking the news every 20 minutes. Is everything okay? Is there an update? Especially, you know, with just the assassination of this Hamas leader yesterday, where, you know, it's really tempting. But I think you you have to also take care of yourself and, and take a break from all the negativity. So in the first, you know, few weeks of the war, I just was experienced what I now understand many people were experiencing, um, which is I just felt like totally spaced out, like had a really hard time focusing, I had a hard time sleeping, having nightmares, I just felt like anything that I enjoyed before I didn't enjoy it anymore, like total lack of motivation. Um, I do want to discuss something, you know, from a neuroscience perspective as well in a bit. But basically, I had, um, you know, veterans, at my company asking if I was okay. Now, the irony is um, a few months ago, um, I, I hosted an internal um, video program at my company called Vet Talks. I interviewed um, veterans about different mental health issues. And and again, it was their stories, not mine. So I was, I was comfortable doing it. But like a, a big message that we came away with was, you know, don't be alone. It's okay to ask for help. And it actually, you know, shows a lot of strength to, to reach out for help. So Absolutely. the irony, so I was okay, you know, saying that, right. But it's one thing to, pra you know, it's one thing to, to preach it. It's another thing to practice it. And so, you know, a few months later, when this war breaks down Israel, I had some of the same people that were involved in this video series say, Hey, Jessica, if you're not doing well, because I was really trying hard to just be normal at work, but they were like, Hey, if you're not doing well, it's okay to talk. So he also said to me, uh, he said, yeah, you feel bad, period. And I'm like, and? And he said, that's normal. Like, why wouldn't you feel bad? Right? So he yeah. said, you're, you're going to have to sit with that feeling for a bit. So I realized also, like, it made me think of this interview that I, I conducted with uh, this, this uh, police officer, Todd Jerry, in the Texas Police Department uh, several months ago. And he said, you know, when he was like, he's been in the police now for over 20 years, but he said early on in his career, um, he witnessed like a horrific crime scene and he was so shaken up. He couldn't sleep for days. He felt like really sick and he thought, I'm not cut out for this man. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out that he really was cut out for his job. He was having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And once he started talking to people and realizing like, it's uncomfortable to feel scared and to feel disgusted and, and all these negative emotions. But sometimes you, you have to accept that you have to sit with those emotions because they're there. Now, on the other hand, there's a duality, right? There's a balance. I think even if you're sitting with these negative emotions, 
and accepting that this is a normal response to an abnormal situation, right? Which my colleague was trying to drive home to me. I, I think at the same time, I mean, you don't want to fall apart, right? And you have to figure out like, what are the coping mechanisms, right? Yeah, um, coping mechanisms. Yeah. So I read about a, this was about a, a month into the war. I read an article in the Times of Israel. Um, it was an interview with Dr. Uh, Talma Hendler. She she's um, a neuroscientist, so she works at uh, she works in the trauma psychiatry department um, at Ichilov Hospital, and she's a, a professor at Tel Aviv University. And you know, she was talking about you know this this stress reaction in all of Israeli society right now, and uh, the estimates are about. 60% of Israeli society outside of the southern communities who got right hit the worst from this, about 60% of Israeli society is, is suffering from ASD, acute stress disorder, right? And she was saying how basically what's going on, she described all these symptoms that I was having, like the lack of focus, the weird motivation issues, just the the fog, the the, the crying all the time, the, the ang also like even the reactions to like, I would hear a loud noise and I would just shudder and feel like I'm going to vomit, right? Like she described all of that. I was like, whoa. So again, you realize you're not alone. I think it's important to realize that, right? Um, but she was saying that this is basically your amygdala. And I'm going to go a little like neuroscience here. My, my brother's a neuroscientist, so I hope I don't screw this up because then he's going to give me grief afterwards. <laughs> but the amygdala, right, is it's like little, the dual system. We have a piece of it on each side of our brain. It, and and it's um, responsible for um, regulating and taking in like emotional stimuli, right? And so, you know, it's part of the wider limbic system, which is responsible for behavior, for motivation, for for learning, and and so on. And so, what happens is like when you're really stressed out, like when you witness trauma, and it's like because of the empathy you have, right, with your community, you're like taking it in as if it's happening to you. It just overwhelms the the system. It's hyperactivated. And she was saying um, something really interesting that, um, you know, over if this system is hyperactivated over time, it can really cause physical damage, right? And we actually have situations of, of people in Israel, like of first responders, who young people who had heart attacks after what they saw. Um, we even have small children um, running to uh, bomb shelters during the rocket fire um, who, who dropped out of heart attacks, right? So we, we I mean, unbelievable stuff. But yeah, so we know that this has a real physical effect, but she said um, that basically, you know, you you have to actively chase psychological resilience. You have to take that into your own hands. It's not something that is just going to kind of fall into your lap. And it has to be done in two ways, going back to that duality. So one is you have to deregulate the the limbic system that's that's you know really activated right so you have to figure out ways to calm yourself down like i found doing you know deep yoga meditation right like those are ways of calm deregulating the limbic system on the other hand you have to try to activate something called the mesolimbic system which is responsible for reward for feelings of motivation so how do we do that well we saw in israel so many people who wanted to volunteer their time after you know the massacres and the displacement yeah. There's still 200,000 Israeli citizens who are displaced from their homes. And people were like, what can I do to help? I want to help. Right. And so that's activating that system. So I realized after reading this article, like, number one, you have to take it into your own hands. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody is, it, it's neutral. You're not born with psychological resilience. It's kind of like you're not born being physically fit or not fit, you know, and anybody can go to the gym and get fit. 
and and the same thing goes right with psychological resilience anyone can find those tools right but you have to do it in a way where you're calming down your system at the same time being proactive um not just sitting there in in your misery by yourself but saying what can i do what you know after all this evil that that we've experienced that we've witnessed like what can we do to bring good into the world and i again i'm sorry i kind of went off on a long <laughs> you got me down no, on a long no. tangent but just that that this is applicable not to just to people dealing with war um but even in our personal lives like how you know that self care question right um that we we need to find ways to calm ourselves but also to to keep being active and not give up so if people want to read more on your mental health blog like how do they find that so they can go to jessicawaltonwriter.com and um and, and you can contact me too you can reach out to me as well and jess is very big on linkedin so i would suggest maybe LinkedIn? Is that is that the avenue if people want to? Find that is you? probably where I'm I am most active. I'm most active there because that's where many um, people in the government and the security field are, are active as well. Any final thoughts, Jess, before we wrap this? <laughs> um, yeah, I just just the power of choice, you know, like, we always have choices to make, you know, like you're talking about this kind of whirlwind in the Middle East. How's it going to turn out? I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I, I know that we always have choices, you know, how we want to treat people. We always have a choice to keep putting out our hand, you know, hoping for peace. Um, we have choices with mental health, you know, how we handle our own mental health. So instead of feeling like vulnerable, like I don't have a choice, my mental health is just wrecked. That's how I felt in the beginning. But after speaking, you know, to my colleague and to other people, I realized like, no, I can actually take active measures, you know, to to take care of myself while still feeling this pain, right? And and acknowledging that pain might not go away. But I think that is important. I think it makes us very powerful to acknowledge that no matter what kind of situation we're we're in, we we always have a choice to make. Well, I just appreciate your time so much. Thank you for being so candid and for sharing what you did. I really appreciate it. And uh I, I love what you're doing with mental health. Thank you. So Carry on, friend. Carry on. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate Natasha. And please carry on with what you're doing as well. Thank you. And for those of you who want to see other episodes of the podcast, you can do that by visiting tngdefense.com. If you just want the audio, you can check that out on iTunes, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you so much for watching and listening and have a wonderful day, everybody.